Hey, welcome to the Mind Your Health Podcast. I'm so glad you can join us. I'm your host, Dr. Mina Merholm. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in Columbia University. I'll be speaking with some of the leading experts in mental health around the world to learn how we can incorporate principles of lifestyle changes, our faith, as well as some of the leading innovations in mental health to learn how we can live happier and more fulfilled lives. And hopefully we'll have some fun along the way. I hope this inspires you and encourages you to mind your health. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we are so excited today to be joined by an excellent, excellent guest that I've been really looking forward to speaking with. As we know, my name is Dr. Mina Miracle, board certified psychiatrist and a consultant for the MBA's Players Association. And I am very fortunate and so excited to be able to have with me Dr. Tom Meyer here with us, who is the NFL's Player Association Medical Director for many, many years, lots of experience working with players and athletes, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you can uh, be with us today. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, Mina. I love the work that you do and your uh, comprehensive approach to helping uh, athletes, patients, we call them player patients in the NFLPA. So yeah, I'm delighted to join you. I'm happy to chat with you. Thank you so much, Tom. So let's dive right into it. So I'm, I'm sure folks are, you know, oftentimes there's so many NFL fans who have a sense of what players are, are like, right? They know that they can cheer for them. But from your perspective, kind of in your role, what's it like being in this role of caring for athletes, these player patients? What's this, this role like for you? Well, it's, for me, the best job in the world by far. When our boys were younger, we used to say to them every day when we took them to school, one more step in the journey of discovering where your deep joy meets the world's deep needs. Mm. They prefer to take the bus, as you might guess. <laughs> much want to hear that from their father. You know, you might tolerate it from your mother. But for me, you know, I, I wasn't out seeking this in any way. Mm. And as it turns out, there had never been a medical director for the NFL Players Association. Mm. But it's a phenomenal job. And it fits very much with my deep joy, my passion, which is caring for people, caring for athletes in particular, but but patients uh, writ large. You may know I'm an emergency physician by uh, boards and, and uh, training and as well as pediatric emergency medicine. So it's, uh, it's really great. There's 2,500 active players in the NFLPA each year. Uh, if you take the 32 clubs, we call them clubs instead of teams for your listeners, and you multiply it out in terms of the roster, you get about 2,500 active players. 300 come in every year from the combine and, and the draft and 300 go out every year because the rosters don't, the roster size doesn't change. So, you know, I have 2,500 players, their wives are significant others, their kids, often their parents and their extended family. So I always like to say I'm, to my knowledge, one of the only doctors with 10,000 patients. And as you might guess, I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail, these days, I take a lot of phone calls from players, from their wives, from their family. It's just been a great job. I love it. That's so beautiful. I love the way that you put that, kind of seeing your joy as well as where the need is. That's, I think that's something that a lot of a lot of docs or really anyone in any profession can sort of hope to aspire to kind of having those two areas meet. And as Yeah, you know, I, I think that part of the problem and it is in healthcare, but particularly in medicine, you know, you and I have seen physicians who got the, got the ratio wrong. They started with deep needs. Mommy and daddy wanted them to be a doctor. And so they went to medical school instead of this is my deep joy. And mm -hmm. they became an emergency physician, a psychiatrist, a surgeon or whatever. 
maybe not because of their deep joy. And mm. I'd submit to you, I just finished a book on burnout. Oh. And I'm happy to send you a copy of that. The uh, This Please. book will sell tens of copies. I'm sure it's going to be, you know. But my I'll point is, <laughs> yeah, I think part of the reason some doctors burn out is they didn't figure out that deep joy prior to choosing either their specialty, their job, or maybe they really wanted to be an architect or an artist or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that drives me completely crazy is when I hear a physician say, I would never tell my kids to be a doctor. Yes. Yeah. When the boys were younger, when they did something that maybe they ought not have been doing, Maureen and I would say, what's that smell? I think it's your soul burning in hell. And that's what I feel when I hear doctors say, you know, I'd never tell my kids to become a doctor. It's like, well, then get another job. I mean, come on. Sorry, that was a little off and and a little off cover as well. No, it totally applies because I think, you know, I love this area of burnout and rediscovering kind of the, your passion, whether it's in your field of medicine. And I think it even applies to athletes too. Like I've seen for some athletes who just get in the game because you know what, I'm built for it and I'm really good, but there's a part of it that loses like its flavor. Have you kind of seen that with players too, that they kind of get in front of it and they kind of do the work, but the joy is not quite there? Very seldom, but sometimes there's no mm-hmm. question about that. And Keep in mind, and and I know you already know this, you may not have thought it in in quite this way, but if you think of the sort of the classic bell-shaped curve, and most of the people are in the middle, some off to the left, some on the right, my players have lived their entire life on the right side of the bell-shaped curve, Hmm. that asymptotically approaching a very small number. What do I mean by that? They played peewee football. Oh, you're great peewee football. Wait till you get to high school. You're great at high school, but are you going to go to college? And if so, where? And, you know, you're great at college, but are you going to get drafted? And if you get drafted and, you know, every time they were told you'll never make it and they did. Mm -hmm. And it's almost a self-selection process that Mm -hmm. no matter how good you are in terms of inherent ability, size and speed and the distinguishing thing about NFL players is their speed, how mm. fast they're moving. Mm. And uh, it's very hard to get there unless you maintain that deep joy, that passion for what you do. And when guys retire, I find that many of them just say, you know what, I've done it. I've done what I could. And there's a cost, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, extracted from anyone for whatever job they do. But the NFL, of course, is a business, whether it's training, whether it's training camp, whether it's going through the rigors of having their minds, bodies and spirits ready Mm. and their cycle of performance, rest and recovery that they're constantly in. I think at the end, many of them have have reflected to me, you know, okay, I've done enough. I want to spend more time with my kids. I've got other avenues. Many of them pursued graduate studies, MBAs one at least in a master's in public health, interestingly enough. Wow. And yeah. It's, it's always a balance. I think life is always that balance between job stressors and the adaptive capacity or resiliency to deal with those job stressors. And that's no less true in the NFL than it is in medicine writ large for physicians, nurses, advanced practice providers. You're absolutely right. It seems like this capacity to adapt, this resiliency is something that Everyone is trying to really learn at this point. Physicians are really struggling with, as you mentioned, you know, when they do these surveys of what's going to be the difference for physicians to be more satisfied. It's not more money. It's not more time off. It's this kind of satisfaction that's missing sometimes for docs. 
Can you speak a little bit to this resiliency for, for players, the, the mental prep, the getting your mind, body, and spirit ready, as, as you're saying? Like, what's that process like for them? How do you kind of help them optimize that part? Well, I, I played when I was in college, and uh, I was a linebacker, as, as you might guess, and was fortunate enough to start when I was a freshman. And I'll, I'll never forget our coach, linebacker coach, said, you know, Mayor, you know, you're the starting middle linebacker. You know, my linebackers are agile, hostile, and mobile. What do you think of that? And I said, well, I, I agree, coach. I mean, he's the coach after all. I want to, I want to keep my position. But I said, you know, I, I as the as the Mike, we call it Mike linebacker, I got to read and react. I got to be ready to adapt. So mm -hmm. I got to adapt, adapt, adapt all game. And he thought for a second and said, my linebackers are agile, mobile, hostile, and adaptile. Yep. And that's what both a player but also a physician, a nurse, anybody in healthcare. As you know, adaptive capacity is critical because there are so many job stressors, whether in the NFL or in the jobs that you and I do on a daily basis. Hmm. The term you could take, and what I talk about in the book is jobs, burnout is just a ratio, a ratio of job stressors divided by the adaptive capacity or resiliency. Hmm. Resiliency, as you well know, first of all, it's a great term, it's a great word, the ability to deform and get through a situation, almost like get through this hole that's mm. in front of me. I'm sure there's an NFL uh, analogy there as well. And then reform back into shape after you come through. But in some circles, it's, it's become equated with, you know, mindfulness, meditation. And there's a certain piece of resiliency that, you know, I was a theology major when I was in college before I went oh. to medical school. And so I think that all language has meaning and all behavior has meaning. Mm. And, and I think that whether you're a football player or whether you're a physician, just to stay with those two categories, there is an inherent message about resiliency that says you're not resilient enough. Mm. You're burned out or you're not playing or you went from a one to a two, meaning a starter, mm. to a backup because of your failures. Mm. So I've been very careful about talking more about adaptive capacity as mm. opposed to resiliency, just for that, or at least making that distinction. And in the NFL, you know, it's constant. There's 300 coming in, there's 300 coming out. There's 300 right side of the bell-shaped curve quarterbacks, for example, mm. not 300 of them, but for any given club, you know, the guy who's starting is, is saying, okay, this guy's trying to take my job. Mm. And it's that blood. Now, you have to have the equanimity of spirit, of largesse, of, of mind, body, and spirit to be able to say, if it's good for the club, it's good for me. Mm. And I'm going to help this kid come along. I'm going to show him the, not just the trade, but the tricks of the trade to be able to do it. And that's what our players do all the time. I, I almost never hear of somebody sniping at a, at a new DB defensive back who comes into the league or linebacker or anything else. They're, you know, They're there for a purpose. And mm -hmm. that is for the team to do better. And if they can help do that, they do. Does that make sense? It does. I can see that camaraderie for players. And I, I really experienced what you're talking about in terms of when somebody's hearing that message about resiliency and feeling like, well, you know what? Maybe this was a trait I wasn't born with, right? I didn't get that resiliency gene, right? So it's things for me. I'm not going to be able to adapt like the those much smarter guys or just people who are better, more emotionally intelligent. And I'm really curious what you mentioned there being a theology major. Is there a role or have you seen kind of a role for faith in communicating that message about, you know, adaptive capacity? Or has that been something that you've seen take a 
an important role for players or for docs? Oh, I think it's it's absolutely critical and, and not talked about enough. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, the players, they get that, they understand that. And to them, of course, resiliency is not a bad word because I always believe, again, sticking with medicine and, and football, there's three fundamental insights about how you get through a difficult job and how do you do that without burning out. One is every player is a leader. Mm-hmm. Every physician, every nurse, every housekeeper in, in the hospital is a leader. Lead yourself and lead your team. Mm-hmm. Two is just like my NFL athletes, everyone involved in healthcare is a performance athlete involved in this cycle of performance, rest, and recovery. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you can do his job as stressful as playing before 80,000 people in the stands and 80 million people on TV or being in the operating room or the emergency department or the psychiatry ward or wherever it might be is performance. And Mm -hmm. that requires rest and recovery. And the third is the work begins with them. Yes, there are systemic problems. Yes, there are operational problems. I like to make the distinction between organizational resiliency and personal resiliency. Organizational resiliency is the culture of the organization and the systems and processes in which we have to work, which as Mm -hmm. you know, are sometimes fairly tortured but also fairly tortured with the players as well. They go through, you know, you'll hear a coach say, well, we got to have contact so we can knock the rust off. And, you know, I feel like calling them up and saying, well, why don't I send one of my offensive tackles over and he'll knock the rust off you. Put your mind in a position where you realize that's not going to help them be ready to play football. Mm -hmm. So mental, physical, spiritual dimension is an absolutely palpable and understood dimension to our players, just as it is and should be for people who are caring for others in healthcare. Absolutely. And it seems that maybe that dimension in terms of the after performance, the recovery, and sort of what that would look like for players is inherent in the game. Do you feel like that's something that's sometimes absent in the medical world? We're just used to, you know, you're working, 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 call, next patient, call, next patient. Have we sort of lost that sense of why we have to recover and recoup sort of after the performance element of things? Do you feel like that element is? Absolutely. I, I think there's a, a critical aspect of that. And, you know, you, you go into the training room and you see guys icing and, and there's, there's, as you probably know, tremendous number of ways in which they deal with pain mm-hmm. and talk about a metaphor between healthcare and football players in particular, mm-hmm. but but professional athletes, the pain that they go through, it's a cost extracted for having played the game. They'll tell you things like, I'll tell you what, on a Monday morning, I feel like I got to take a taxi to get from the bedroom to the bathroom. They understand that. They generically don't complain about that, but they deal with ice. They deal with multiple different ways, electrical stimulation. You may know that lithotripsy, extracorporeal shockwave therapy now used not just for kidney stones, but for hamstring injuries and and Mm. tendinopathies and Achilles tendon strains, Mm. not tears. That's still tears, of course, is surgical. But there's this whole constellation of ways in which an NFL player gets back to where they need to be, understanding that something, at least on the short term, and we're studying, we can talk about that if you want, what is the cost extracted from the player on the long term, cognitively, physically, pain, all those kinds of issues. And I think one of the things that I wish was more true in healthcare is, is that people think, I need to recover from having just worked that shift, that day, that on call, 
whatever it might be. Just that if you're on call, as you probably often are, the phone rings and there's a certain amount of anxiety with what's on the other end and am I prepared to deal with it? So there's a metaphor, I think, between that and newly drafted wide receivers coming into the NFL and the DB lines up across from them and thinks, mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smoke this guy. But there's a little bit that's, is he going to smoke me? Mm. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fascinating um, balance between the two. It really is. And I'm, I'm curious here about when you mentioned the pain part that's sort of expected and understood. So in reality, sometimes medicine too, there's a for the pain to it and as well as for the NFL. You know, as, as we sort of know, there are some times where there's just healthy ways to cope with that, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. You know, there was a big story about an Olympic athlete who was coping with the passing of her mother and she turned to substances, you know, with marijuana, which is legal in most places, but that created a whole big debacle. Have you sort of seen at times there are these sort of unhealthy ways that players are coping with that physical or emotional pain that sometimes leads into some areas. Yeah, we've dealt in the NFLPA and, and any, first of all, anytime you hear NFL, NFL protocol, it's really an NFL, NFLPA protocol mm-hmm. because it's a collectively bargained. We have a CBA, collective bargaining agreement, mm-hmm. and we put into that agreement uh, the pain management protocols. There's a pain management committee and behavioral health protocols as well. There are now team clinicians required in each club. There's also pain management specialists required at each club that I, as the medical director, have to approve from the NFLPA standpoint. Hmm. So not to go too deep down a rabbit hole, but the biosocial psychological model of pain, hmm. I think is something that, that is intuitive to our players. And when we talk to them about that and ways in which it can be dealt with, which are not just block the pain, give hmm. me a shot, you know, give me a pill. They don't want to do that if they don't have to. And they want to deal with, and, and you talk about rehab. I mean, ACL uh, injuries, about 60 a year, not an easy rehab, but a rehab that, that they have to grit their way through. Look at uh, the great Alex Smith and his journey back from that horrific injury mm. and the courage it took to even dream that he could go back on the field. Mm. And to this day, if you haven't seen or if your listeners, viewers haven't, you know, you see pictures of his leg and you go, he couldn't play with a leg like that, but he did. And he played well, he played absolutely well. So that ability to take all aspects of kind of the cycle, whether it's pain, pain management, behavioral health aspects, no Mm. question, that's an issue. And I think we're getting better and better between our negotiations with the NFL and the NFLPA to not only suggest, but to insist that Mm. these models be followed and that best practices in both pain management and and behavioral health be followed as well. Do you think that, you know, in some ways, because the physical pain is sort of comes with the territory and is almost sort of a badge of honor that comes with it, right? If you, not that you want to get hurt, right? But if there's, you know, you're a guy, you're playing the sport and you can get hurt and you can get through it. But on the behavioral health sort of emotional pain element, there hasn't been a whole lot of players that have been really outspoken about it. Maybe Dak, a couple of guys here and there. Do you feel that among the league, it's still somewhat of a stigma or a barrier to say, hey, you know, I might be struggling with something and I could use some behavioral health or intervention. Is that stigma or barrier getting better or is it there? I mean, it's an excellent point. And so first of all, I'll start with the obvious, but I'll come to the point. What are our players? Our players are people, Mm -hmm. okay? And all people in our society at the current time, in my opinion, 
regardless of background, socioeconomic, racial, gender, you know, any of those things, there is a stigma to admitting to behavioral health. There's a reason we call it behavioral health instead of mental health. And mental health was a, a better step than, than mental illness right. and, and all of that pejorative feel to that. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a link, I think, to burnout. And I'll, I'll try to make that connection if I can without getting too far, which is to be able to say, let's, to the extent we can, given the fact that, that these are men, businessmen playing football mm. and have been raised you know, to their 20s, with that stigma, not because of them, but because of societal issues around that. There's something about saying that, that you say, I'm not good enough. I don't have enough really resiliency, adaptive capacity. It's eating at me. It's bothering me. Mm. I will say in the locker room, many of the clubs that we had prior to our CBA uh, insisting on behavioral health had their own team clinicians, had mental health counselors that were available. Yet their rooms, their offices would have, you know, blinds. And as a psychiatrist, you can appreciate this. I can go in there, but I don't want to see anybody to see me in there. And, you know, a position coach walks by and sees you in there. And it's like, wait a minute, what's wrong with him? What's right. wrong with him? I think both in the NFL, certainly in the NFL, but also in society, removing that sense that there's a stain, a stigma, a problem, a deficiency, a lack of ability to cope. And understanding that there's really a, you know, just a really broad capacity like that bell-shaped curve again. Mm -hmm. And encouraging players to say, listen, if you weren't mentally tough, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't right. have gotten here. All the things that you went through. Now let's talk about, okay, let's try to make it a little better. I'll give you an example. It's been 10 years ago, but there was a young kicker that came in. I won't say who really a great kicker, place kicker and terrific. Absolutely. And, and I was at training camp and I was watching him and man, this guy could just nail it. Mm. And all of a sudden the head coach walks up and he starts missing and the co coach goes away and, you know, he's almost hyperventilating. Mm. And, and I said, what's the problem? He goes, being around that guy makes me really nervous. Mm. And I said, you need to think about something. He's going to be at every game. And it's funny because later he came to me and he said, that changed everything for me. Wow. Once I realized, you know what, I got to get used to it because there's not going to be a football game for this club that the head coach is now. And so there's a lot of times it's not that they're not tough. It's just they need one, a way of looking at things, a lens through which you can see things more clearly. Like when you go to the ophthalmologist and that four quadrant diopter comes right. in, you know, one, two, three, four which is more sharp. And I think what we have to do as professionals is provide them with as sharp a lens as we can to help them through so that they've got the, the vision to say, okay, I see the path. I see how it can mm -hmm. be done. Mental visualization is something certainly kickers do. I mean, you mm -hmm. see this all the time. They like, it's like, what the right. hell is this? You know, <laughs> oh, that's going to make sure it goes right down the pipes, you know, but there's a ritual that they go through. No, absolutely. And I think, these tools, though, these that are that are given, I know one of the things that, you know, the NBA Players Association is struggling with is having those tools sort of universally available or implementation is sort of depending on the team. It hasn't been something that the same tool is available to every player and every club or every team throughout yeah. the country. Has that been a challenge for the NFL Players Association as well? Well, with us, I mean, certainly we've got a much larger player pool than the NBA, of course, just because mm -hmm. of the size of the roster and not just the number of teams. 
you know, some similarity in the number of teams, but the size of the roster alone. I mean, we've got a 53 man roster and a, and a, you know, practice uh, roster as well. 46 man game day roster. So not all 53 suit up. So that piece is different. And of course, I think what it means is you've got to be more vigilant about making sure those guys are good. Hmm. And that happens through a numbers of way. One is that, you know, you've heard this term probably that quarterback room and the DB room and the linebacker room. Well, there really are rooms in the facilities that they go for their meetings and their breakouts. And, and oh. if you walk through the facility, it'll say quarterback room or, you know, DBs, that kind of thing. So within that group, they watch each other to make sure everything's okay. I mentioned about concussion here in a second. Number two, we have player representatives, one elected and then two alternates. So the player reps are union representatives. They're watching the locker room. They're checking to make sure that, you know, protocols are being followed. You know, did anybody not follow the concussion protocol or the heat and climatization protocol? All those kinds of issues. But they're also just checking folks out, just making sure, hey, you good to go. Mm -hmm. And then we have player directors. Our player directors, I don't think, but I don't know if the NBA has this or NBPA. Our player directors are guys that played a minimum of 10 years in the league and are assigned five or six clubs that they stay up with. They visit, they go to the locker room. They're constantly talking to people, you know, everything good. And I'll give you an example. When we did the original concussion protocols didn't come from the NFL. They were written by the NFL PA that we need to adopt these and mandate them. But we're now to the point with concussions that fully 50% of concussion reports come from the players themselves saying something's off, something's wrong. Sometimes a fellow player saying about another player, something's off. Several years ago, a wide receiver was talking to the starting quarterback and said, dude, what's off with your, your snap counts? Totally off. You know, I'm false starting because you're not calling the signals the way you normally do. And as he put it, you'll appreciate this. He said, I looked in his eyes, but there was no one home. Wow. So he went and got the trainer. I mean, a team physician said, check 12 out. He needs to be looked at. Indeed, he had a concussion. Wow. So I think it's a community. The locker room's a community. We have to watch each other. We have to make sure everybody's okay and be as concerned about the nickelback as the starting cornerback and as vigilant about the last man on the roster, the 53rd and 52nd people on the roster as the starters and all pro. To your point here, I mean, that community can be so powerful, especially it's a little bit different for, for the NFL as opposed to the NBA. You have this camaraderie among positions, right? Everyone plays, which is really amazing. Can you speak a little bit to how that community part was sort of impacted in the past year, year and a half with the whole COVID protocol? Did that disrupt kind of the camaraderie in the league or, or did it not really impact that particular part? Well, you know, these dynamic tensions in life, I, I would say, and, and as you have picked up, I'm not all that bright. You know, there's a lot sharper knives in the drawer than me. So things <laughs> have to be pretty simple for me. And to your question about what was the effect of COVID on that locker room, it's kind of binary. It was either going to make them closer or it was going to drive them apart. Right. And there probably wasn't a whole lot in between. And almost without exception, I would say without exception, it drove them closer. Hmm. They understood that they were a brotherhood and they were working together for a common goal under extraordinarily difficult circumstances, being tested every day, 
masking, uh, protocols, physical distancing. I don't love the term. Social distancing makes no sense to me. I mean, <laughs> I agree. You know, I was kind of an outsider in, in high school. So I was socially distanced in high school uh, long before there was a coronavirus. But physical distancing, disinfectants. I mean, even the rooms, typically when they go into their quarterback room and their linebacker room, their DB room, you know, they're sitting right next to each other, you know, slapping five and joking and, and teasing each other and all that. Well, they're not even within six feet of each other. So, mm. yeah, and, and the problem, not to get too deep into COVID unless you want to, but uh, we all want it to be over, but there's no question, but it ain't over and it's not going to be over probably for another two or three years. And, and that's disheartening, whether you're a football player, NBA player or fan in the stands. So right. as we look at that novel emerging virus, and the science behind it, which drives the protocols that we have and the testing protocols that we have. We have to be, I think, constantly vigilant. What's the mental health? What's the behavioral health? What's the toll extracted mm. physically, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally from mm. those who are involved in that, whether it's a person on the street or whether it's a person under the protocols in the NFL? That's not, you're absolutely right there. And I think part of the difficulty is that toll extracted or the pressure and sort of the mounting effect on players. I don't know if fans, the casual fan or even the diehard fan really has a good grasp of that and a good sense of what it's like to be a player going through this past year. You just know you're rooting for your guy and they're either playing well or they're not playing, <clears throat> playing well. What would you want the fan who's watching the game to sort of understand about the impact that this has had on players the past year and how it's impacting them going forward? Well, I think, first of all, without fans, the NFL would not be where it is. Our guys wouldn't have the opportunities that they have. They would certainly wouldn't be paid what they're paid, witness the effect on the salary cap this year versus last year, because as you probably know, we set the salary cap by CBA mandate the year after the previous year. So the losses of last year have had an impact on the salary cap for this year. And fans are the lifeblood of any sport. National Football League, NBA, college, NC2A, all those issues and, and problems that go with that. When I talk to fans, I always tell them, just understand these are men. Mm. They have families. There's a cost extracted from this. If you find yourself saying, well, I could have done that if only. I think, and I am talking to a psychiatrist, this is Noah trying to teach Noah about the flood, but the if onlys in life are never going to help you, just not going to help you. And helping them understand that it's not easy. It's just not easy to do what they go through. And the average careers you probably know is 3.5 years. But you got Tom Brady and Drew Brees and Jackie Slater, who was a famous left tackle for the Rams, mm. playing 20 plus years. Well, that means there's going to be a whole lot of ones and twos right. to come to that mean of 3.5 years. Mm. You know, it's the old Latin saying, sic transit gloria mundi, all glory is fleeting. Mm. And think about this as a physician. I say this to the NFL team doctors and the NFL committees all the time, but can you imagine having gone through college, medical school, residency, and providing a career? What if somebody came in and said, you know, Dr. Mearhorn, you've been great. We really appreciate it. Give me your stethoscope. Give me your white coat. Give me your ID. Clean out your locker and don't ever come back here again. Well, that happens to almost every player in the NFL. Most of our players aren't retired. They are retired. They don't mm. choose to retire. They are retired because someone mm. says, you're done. Either go to another club or you're finished. 
And there's obviously plenty of people who choose to retire, mm. but that's the exception versus the rule. And I can tell you that most physicians, when I put it that way, I mean, their eyes get huge, their heart rate goes up. It's like, oh my God, would kill me. Would kill me to be right. told you can't be a physician yet. Even the ones who say, I would never tell my child to become a doctor. <laughs> I'm sure they all still appreciate the paycheck after. after yeah. well, I mean, that's incredibly eye-opening. I've never heard it put in those terms. So I, so I, that is uh, my, I'm in the same shop as, as other people that have heard this from you. And I guess I'm wondering, for NBA players, there's sometimes discussion about that post-retirement life and you know they're not in the limelight anymore. So are they still getting the same access to resources? And this seems to be, you know, from what you're saying for NFL players, it's it can be something that's somewhat abrupt and somewhat devastating to deal with. What's that process like for them? Can they still be connected to resources? Like how do they how do you help them adjust that retirement? Well, the, the players association has dealt with that a lot. And and as we negotiate our CBAs, we've put more and more time, effort, and energy into both thinking about it, but funding it, the trust. If you're not familiar with that, I'll send you a link to that. But the trust, which is fueled by the um, NFL, provides resources for players that request or need them, and we have outreach to them. You know, you're, you're going to have the Tom Brady's of the world, the Drew Brees. They're not going to have to worry. They've got resources built up and actually other businesses in which they've become involved, as well as others. You know, Matthew Slater, who's Jackie's son, a uh, legendary special teams player for the Patriots, still playing. He's a guy with protean interests and protean talents as well. So Jackie's going to be fine and, and, you know, choose what our past, two of our past presidents, Dominic Foxworth and Eric Winston, while they were playing, got their MBAs from Wharton and from Harvard. Uh, Dominic now, as you may know, is on ESPN as a commentator and is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal as a commentator. So you go on and on and, you know, there's life after it's life after mm-hmm. that we have to be very sensitive about. And as you might guess, you can take a player who five minutes ago was going, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, I'm getting ready for training camp and it's so mm-hmm. hard. And somebody says, grab your playbook and go see the coach. And all of a sudden you're told you can't play. What? What do you mean? I can't play. So it's, you know, it's a very, very hard just a whole prospect of taking people from the limelight from 80,000 people in the stands and 80 million people around the world to, I am not allowed to do that anymore versus I choose not to do that anymore. And we'll do more and more about that. Our uh, research funding is through Harvard, the football players health study at Harvard. And we now have the largest over 4,000 former players, living players who've responded and talked about what's it like, what are the issues that they face, And then, of course, being very practical as a a players association, we want what are the solutions Mm. to help heal the wounds, gird the loins, make sure that they have the resources to deal with the cost extracted from them, including pain. Chronic pain Mm. is a major issue for Mm. our players, unsurprisingly. Osteoarthritis, knees, hips, you know, shoulders, elbows, you name it. So we're working through that as best we can to invest not only in the current players, but in the former players as well. It's so inspiring to hear kind of how you're taking such a broad approach here between addressing current needs, having the vision for future needs, study them, current players, retired players. I mean, just the, the scope and breadth of this work to me is, is really inspiring. I, I got well, I, I'll give you, a, first of all, I love my job. That's probably very obvious from the, from the conversation. 
and a lot of people say, I can't believe you helped get through the COVID and all the other issues, the concussion crisis when we first dealt with that, all the other things. I mean, my job, I started on August 1st, 2001. What day was that? Well, that's the day Corey Stringer died of heat stroke. You say heat stroke? How could you die of heat stroke? Well, you know, a University of Maryland kid was killed a couple of years ago, working out under the supervision of coaches and trainers mm-hmm. and had heat stroke and was not recognized nor treated. So it's still mm-hmm. an issue. But what guides us is, and I think what guides all great organizations and people within those organizations is a clear sense of mission, vision, and values, mm-hmm. understanding what you're there for. And so ours are three things fundamentally. Number one, health and safety are our most important priority. Well, that makes it pretty easy because you're not negotiating about it. You're just saying, no, we're going to do this because it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. Two, we'll go anywhere the science takes us and nowhere the science doesn't. So Mm -hmm. during the discussions of COVID, concussions, acclimatization, cardiac, you name it, the answer is, you know, in God we trust, all others bring scientific data. So don't say, I think, Mm. say the data show and here are the data to support that so that's Mm. the second we'll go anywhere the science takes us and nowhere it doesn't and the third is whole player whole life whole family we are here as a health and safety part of the nfl players association to deal with the whole player the whole their whole life and their whole family the whole ecosystem in which they work not just Mm. while they're in the league but while they're outside of the league as well then we take it a very what i call personalized precision medicine approach which is Mm moving from what's the matter with you to Mm. what matters to you, Mm. different question. Number two, that moves the player patient from being a recipient of care to being a participant in their care. Mm. Totally different deal. Make the player a part of the team. Make Mm. the player patient a part of the team, whether in your practice in psychiatry or mine in emergency medicine. And the third is nothing about us without us. Nothing about us, the players, when it comes to health and safety without us, without our voice, without our input. And so if you take those six things, people say, well, how'd you do it? The answer is, it was easy. I mean, (laughs) as long as, you know, my boss is D. Smith, who's the best boss in the world, makes it clear, stick to your guns. You got to poke the bear around the issues, then poke the bear around the issues, because that's what we stand for. And knowing you're never going to be second guessed because you stay true to those mission, vision, and values, there's a lot to be said for that. I think there's a lot to be said in every phase of life, parents, healthcare, all those others. We hear all the time, I go visit hospitals and they say, oh God, we've got a great culture. Oh, culture is incredible. And my question is, why are 50% of your people burned out? Hmm. If your culture and your systems and processes are so good, why did you end up with 50% of the people burned out? You get that, I can see from your face. Absolutely. No, I mean, this is, it's so profound to hear you put it this way. It sounds so personal and so strategic and so evidence-based. I mean, it, it may, as, a, as a fan of the game, it makes me sort of happy to, to see that you've taken that approach in this role. And, I, and just like you're saying, I think there's a lot here that applies not just to players and docs, but really just the average person walking around navigating life. Where if you could, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about how you incorporated this also into your book. Because I think really anyone watching or listening should be picking this up you know, immediately. Yeah. Once we get off, give me your snail mail address and I'll sign and send a copy. But again, you know, going back to the basics, to me, things have to be simple. And it struck me that the burnout equation, and it's a huge issue. I've talked to Christina Maslach numerous times about mm-hmm. that. Tate Shanafelt, you may know at Stanford, previously at Mayo, he and I are working on a paper right now about burnout. 
in healthcare leaders as opposed to providers. But to me, it had become too complex. And I'm always interested in something that a person at the bedside can put to, to work in terms of how do we do this? And so to me, taking that definition of saying burnout is simply a ratio of job stressors divided by adaptive capacity slash resiliency. Hmm. And adaptive capacity equals resiliency, using either term that you want. When job stressors are too high or adaptive capacity is too low or some combination, what happens? Christina Maslach was right. Three symptoms, emotional exhaustion, cynicism or depersonalization, and a loss of meaning at work. Hmm. And so it's a logical formula to me. It's a very simple formula. You know, we say, well, we're going to survey for burnout. What are you going to look for? Well, you're going to look for emotional exhaustion, cynicism, depersonalization, and a loss of meaning at work. You know, someone says, I don't feel like I make a difference anymore. Well, I got a pretty good idea where that goes. I'm burned out. I'm so burned out. Well, that sounds like exhaustion to me. You know what? I don't even care about my patients anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, sad to say, we do hear that. Or that day. What they really mean is that day. And so if you take that and look at it and you start to say, what are the factors which comprise it? There's three, culture of the organization. Is there a culture for passion? Come back to that in just a second. And resiliency. Number two, I call it hardwiring flow, probably because I wrote a book called Hardwiring Flow, but it's systems and processes. Are they smart systems and processes? So stop doing stupid stuff, start doing smart stuff. And as you know, we do a lot of stupid stuff in healthcare. Totally. Yeah. I mean, do you work for the EHR? Does the EHR work for you? So those two comprise the organizational resiliency piece. And then the final part is the issue of personal passion and resiliency. And there are tools around that. One of which you might guess is deep joy, deep needs. You know, if you haven't discovered it, rediscover it. Did you stay true to it? And that, of course, is personal resiliency, but all three have to be dealt with if we're going to be serious, because every person is a leader, lead yourself, lead your team. Every person is involved in a cycle of performance, rest, and recovery, because the job is exacting enough, that's extracting enough, that we have to have recovery to be able to do it. And the third is the work begins within. You know, don't wait for the organization to fix the culture and hardwiring flow work on yourself, work on personal development and leadership. And the organizations that have been most successful, Novant is one, Duke is another, Wellstar, Nova, Brigham and Women's, and all these are uh, chapters in the book under other voices to mm-hmm. say, how did people do it in real life? Right. Have invested in the person. Instead of saying, mm-hmm. I want you to go to this conference because I want to get better metrics out of you. Well, thanks. I mean, because I'm fungible. I mean, that sounds like a fun fungible. And if I don't get my metrics up, somebody else will. Instead right. of saying the ones that have been successful have all said, it's about you. Hmm. We want to help you become the best you that you can and maximize your potential. You know what? If we get better metrics, fine. But that's not why we're doing it. And so I think organizations are going to move quicker and quicker. And I'm sorry, that was a lot longer than you wanted. But no, uh, no. yeah, it's a passion reconnect. It's, mm. it's reconnecting to that deep joy and deep needs, that sense that I have meaning at work because I signed up for work that's meaningful to do. Mm. I love it. I believe in it. I know it's going to extract a cost, but here's how I'm going to maximize my potential. We do a, there's a number, there's 22 different tools for battling burnout. One mm. is called love, hate, tolerate. 
and sit down with your staff, sit down with your partners and say, what do you love? Write it down, talk about it, maximize it, okay? What do you hate? Because there are things you hate, like I hate. EHR might be one of them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, eliminate it to the extent that you can. Mm. Well, how can I eliminate the EHR? Well, you can't eliminate it maybe, but you could have a scribe. You mm. could have, you could spend less time in front of the computer and more time creating value in front of the patient. Right. And number three, what do you tolerate? I mean, things you just have to do. And let's see if we can move the EHR from the hate line to the tolerate line mm. and make it work for us instead of us working for the EHR. So simple things like that. But most people feel like, give me a tool. Give me a tool. And right. so we provide 22 tools in there. Yeah, I can't wait to dig in. I got to play it because it sounds, it's such a great combination of very practical, but also very profound. You know, a lot of these simple things are just lost. <laughs> yeah, I will say it's, I mean, it's pretty full of um, a combination of philosophical, historical, mm. theological insights. So there are numerous quotes, numerous examples of ways in which it can be brought together. From Kierkegaard, you remember he famously said, the fundamental injustice of life is the most important questions are those asked least often. Hmm. Well, I'm telling psychiatrists about this. I mean, that's exactly what you probably what you do all day. But but I think it can't be just dry stuff. It's got to be case studies. It's got to be, oh, I see how that ties into what Nietzsche said or Kierkegaard said or Viktor Frankl said. And and of course, Viktor Frankl is a major influence. You know, the the last freedom we have, the freedom to choose, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the work begins with them. That is, I mean, that's beautiful. And and you're right, covering these things are all the parts of the human experience. It's not just one element or one dimension. So, I mean, like I said, I, I can't wait to dig in. And I, I would love to actually continue to talk to you for much longer, but I know you're very busy and you've got a lot. Yeah, no worries. Let's do it again sometime. I, I would love to. I, I can't tell you how thankful I am. I'm grateful. This has been eye-opening for me. I've been trying to take notes on the side. It's so, so great. I know our listeners appreciate it and our, and our viewers do. So Thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat. Oh, it's been my honor and I've enjoyed it more than you have. I've I've shown once again, whenever I speak, that I enjoy talking more than anybody enjoys listening. So thanks for your forbearance with that. No, of course. And then, you know, then I got to pick you up on that offer. We'll chat again. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Please take a second to rate and review as this helps us reach more people. And until then, please don't forget to mind your health. See you soon.